Time now to talk about legal issues with the good folks over at Jeffers Danielson Son and Aylward Law Firm. It's a mouthful, but uh, they do great work here in the Valley. It's why they've been here for so long. Joining us here live in studio is Mike Vanier with Jeffers Danielson Son and Aylward. Let's just call it JD, JDSA uh, Law Firm. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Clint. I'm happy to be here. So let's begin at the beginning here. There are a lot of different law firms that do a lot of different things, a lot of different corners of law. So what do you all focus on over there? Well, uh, our law firm is a full service law firm. So we do pretty much uh, everything. And that includes wills and estates, um, any kind of litigation matter that you may have. Um, We do property transactions, uh, corporate commercial type work and um, everything in between. The only things that we really don't do are bankruptcy and uh, criminal law matters. So everything else we handle. So with a couple of exceptions, really one-stop shopping law there. It it is. All right. Very good. We're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be doing regular conversations for for you listening about a number of different issues along this legal spectrum every week. We're going to start with a family law issue this week. And I I think it's really interesting um, because unless you've been a part of it, I haven't thankfully, but it, unless you've been a part of it, it, I'm sure it's shrouded in mystery and people just don't know the whole uh, process of going through a dissolution of a marriage, a divorce. Lots of folks, I'm sure, walk in to your office and they have a thoughts or um, assumptions about how things are going to go or how things do happen. So when I when you walked in and I said, okay, what are we going to talk about? You said, I want to talk about the four main myths about divorce. So for four common myths, let's start with number one. What's number one? Well, um, first, I'd like to say that uh, these myths come from all sorts of places. And um, primarily, it's when one person is speaking to another saying, you know, I'm thinking about getting a divorce. And then that person who doesn't have any um, legal background will tell them what the law is. And that person comes in and says, well, what you're telling me is different than what I've heard from people. And uh, my point to them is, yes, but you've come to see me because I have legal expertise. And this is my uh, specialty area. I practice exclusively family law. But one of the things that um, people uh, have as a myth is that parents can agree to the amount of child support that is paid. That's wrong. Really? Yeah. Child support is determined by the amount of income that each parent earns and also by the age of the child. So it's like a sliding graph, essentially. Well, there's actually a schedule in the statute that tells you how much you have to pay, and it's based on what your percentage of the total net monthly income is. So let's say, for example, that one parent makes $10,000 a month. I know that that's a big number, but it's easy. Let's go there. And the other parent uh, has a net monthly income of $5,000. And let's say then that the child support obligation for one child would be $1,500. The person that makes 10000 would have a responsibility to pay um, two-thirds of that amount, so $1,000. The other parent would be obligated to pay $500. Now, only one parent will actually pay child support because uh, one parent will be the custodial parent or the parent that has primary placement, and the non-custodial parent will be the one that has to pay the other parent child support. So smack me around a little bit if I'm, if I'm getting the cart before the horse, but um, is another myth regarding joint custody? Because I was going to ask you about, well, what if they have joint custody, if they share custody? Well, that can make a difference. And, and the reason it does is that if they have equal residential time with the child, right. then they're both contributing in a roughly equal amount to the cost of raising that child. If the primary parent has the child more than the other parent, then that parent bears the burden of the cost of raising the child. And so that's why we have child support. 
But if they have an equal income and the child is with them an equal amount of the time, then neither one of them is going to pay child support. Okay. Um, but if one of them makes a lot more money than the other parent and they have the child for an equal amount of time, the parent that makes uh, significantly more money will have some child support obligation, although it will, will be reduced. But the point with myth number one, essentially, is that the whole process of child support is a whole lot more cut and dried than what people perhaps think it will be walking into it. Absolutely. And you cannot contract out of your child support obligation. So let's say one parent feels like it would be an easier path to getting primary placement of a parent or of a child um, to simply agree to not have the other child, uh, sorry, the other parent pay child support. And you can't do that. You, right. You cannot contract out of that obligation. Got it. What's the next myth? Myth number two when it comes to divorces. Well, one of the myths is that uh, because Washington State is a community property state, everything's going to be divided 50-50. Right. And that's not true. What the court can do is it can make whatever distribution of property it wants to, provided it's fair and equitable. And, and so... Um, that's particularly uh, the case when you've got a long-term marriage. If it's a short-term marriage and both parties bring property into the marriage, um, then what the court will try and do is, is have them leave, if it's a short-term marriage, leave the marriage with the assets that they came in with, right. which is significantly different than if it's a long-term marriage, say 25 years or more. Um, what, what the court will try and do is have both people in a roughly equitable financial position going forward for the rest of their lives. And, and so even if um, one of the spouses came in with substantial assets and the other none, uh, the court is still going to move towards a 50-50 split in the division of assets and debts. Very good, because if, say, if you're the primary breadwinner and you're bringing home total amount of the income, but the other person hasn't because they're raising three kids and they felt that it was better at home, that still is an equal division of labor in the court's eyes, and they need to leave with an equal amount of resources. And that's exactly the rationale behind that legal principle. Got it. Okay, so that's myth number one and myth number two behind divorce. We're talking with uh, Mike Vanier with Jeff Jefferson Danielson Son and Aylward Law Firm. What's been number three? Well, uh, myth number three is that if you have an account in your name, that's your separate property. That's not the case. Um, Washington State is a community property state, so the presumption is that if property is acquired uh, from the time of marriage until the date of separation, it's presumed to be community property. And it doesn't matter if the husband uh, takes ownership of the property or the wife takes ownership of the property. And so if you open a bank account during your marriage in your name only and you're depositing money into that bank account, that's joint property. Uh, the money that's going into that account is money that's been earned by one of the spouses, and so that's community property. Um, the, the labor that you um, engage in during the marriage is owned by the community. And so if the labor generates income and it goes into uh, uh, someone's individual bank account, that's still community property, and it's subject to uh, the community property division rules. The assumption if you're married is that you're both in it together. doesn't matter if something is specifically in one name or another, right? Exactly. Okay, so quick follow-up question then. So community property all around, but let's say uh, two parties both bring something into their marriage that they had before they got married. It's really special to them. Object X, object Y, but as they're getting a divorce, let's say the divorce turns nasty. Can one spouse worry that this other spouse is going to go after that one thing that they absolutely love 
just simply to twist the knife a little bit? Well, that's a great question. And our courts are used to that type of behavior um, because there is and can be a lot, of, a high level of conflict and hostility in divorce cases. Um, but what the court will recognize is that there is some significant intrinsic value to that item. Um, and if it is owned by one of the spouses before marriage, that maintains a separate property identity. So it's very likely that the court will award that particular asset to the spouse to whom it belonged um, prior to the marriage. Okay, so we've gone through myths one, two, and three. What's myth number four when it comes to divorce? Uh, well, uh, another myth is that once um, a spouse is awarded a home, like let's say the family home, and, and, and that can be done either by agreement or after a trial, and the court decides on how to divide things up. One of the myths is that um, the spouse that doesn't get the house is off the hook for the mortgage. That's not the case because the contract that both spouses have is with the lending institution. And only that lending institution can release um, one or both spouses from their obligation under the mortgage. And, and I can't imagine, and it's been my experience over many years, that any lending institution is going to release a party from their obligation, unless there's a refinance or something like that. Understood. But is that up to both of the parties leaving the marriage to figure out how that works? Because I'd imagine that someone who say they're leaving the house, they're not living in the house, they can make an argument that, look, she's living there or he's living there, whether they decide to do so or not, that's their decision. But in the meantime, I have zero money in my pocket and I can't do first, last and deposit to even go someplace to live. Yeah, it really doesn't matter. You're really? at the mercy. Yeah, you're at the mercy of the the lender, and if the lender decides, it, let's say that the spouse that remains in the house um, stops stops making the mortgage payments, right? And and then the lender will pursue the husband and the wife both in of them those together. circumstances, right? And it doesn't matter that one was awarded the house, the house, and the other wasn't. It doesn't matter that one was um, ordered to pay that debt and the other wasn't. Um, the contract is between the lender and both spouses, so the lender can pursue both. But there are ways to protect against that. And what you can do is in the final divorce document, you can say that um, the person that is taking the house uh, is required to go out and refinance. Now, your ability to refinance is as good as the lender that you go and see to try and, and get that um, refinancing through. And so let's say that the person that gets the house uh, and is responsible for the mortgage, isn't able to refinance, then what you can do is you can have a backup provision in the decree that basically says, okay, if you can't refinance, then the house is going to be sold because the other spouse um, should be able to uh, go on with their lives without the burden of this debt hanging over them. Wrapping things up with Mike Vanier with JDSA Law Firm. Mike, thanks so much for taking time out to join us. Is there anything that you'd like to add, anything that we missed when it comes to divorce, family law, anything at all about this really important but really sensitive subject? Yeah, what I'd like to say is that divorce is really hard. And, and it's hard for the spouses that are involved. If there are children, it's really difficult for them as well. And my goal is to minimize the difficulty for uh, my clients that come in to see me. And, and that involves not just my client, but um, also, uh, and maybe more especially, the children. Because children are the innocent victims of divorce in many ways. And, and my goal is to minimize the impact of divorce on them 
and on my client and to uh, maximize the, the uh, outcome for my client as well. Fantastic. If folks want more information or they have more questions that they'd like to ask of you, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, they can call me at 662-3685 or send me an email. My email address is Mike V, as in Victor, at jdsalaw.com. That's 662-3685. Mike Vanier with JDSA Law Firm. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Clint.